Hi, this is Pastor Tim. If this is your first time listening today, please stay tuned after the message. So this morning we're in uh, our study in Revelation again, picking it back up in chapter 15. And we're actually going to try and do chapters 15 and 16. I think and I feel that they go really well together. It's obvious when you read them. Uh, it doesn't take a genius to figure that out. I'm hoping that we can get through them in a timely manner. Um, and so that way, I'm actually skipping world events. I think you can just read the news and look at it. And it's so obvious the way things are coming together. You don't need my commentary on it. But if we remember in Revelation, uh, the Apostle John was on the island of Patmos. He was exiled there. And while he was worshiping God uh, by himself, I guess, I don't know. Uh, but he was worshiping God and he uh, turned around and he heard a trumpet and he heard, he saw God. He was really a vision of Jesus that he was brought into heaven and shown the things that are to come, the things that must be, the things that will be. And Jesus is revealed in glory to him. Uh, Revelation reveals the end of the world as we know it, to quote that old song. Uh, it shows us the great tribulation, which is seven years of God's final judgment on the earth. Uh, that's number seven is of completion of perfection. But it's judgment on the nations and on those who follow Satan. The nations don't go on in the afterlife, and the nations need to be judged for their wickedness. But so do the people who follow Satan. They've been given this time throughout all of history to follow Jesus, to repent from their sin. They refuse, they refuse, they refuse. And now they're actually taking Satan's mark, worshiping him on earth. And this is due to them, as we'll see. But lastly, I believe, and it's evident that this tribulation period, not only is God's judgment on earth, but God's last-ditch effort to get anyone to repent who would repent. Because hell is hot, hell is awful, and God desires that none would go there. And previously in Revelation, we've seen a world in allegiance to that world leader, to that Antichrist. The world is going to be scrambling for someone to look to answers to. You know, just like Dr. Fauci tried to be the answer to everyone's problems the past couple of years. And people, some people clamored, some people didn't. But at the end times, things are going to be so bad, the world is ripe for this one world leader. That we've rejected the true leader, Jesus. And so one comes to fill the vacuum and the world turned towards him. And he's colloquially known as the Antichrist. And he requires a mark on the hand or the forehead of the person uh, in the end times who can't buy or sell without it. You can't be part of society without it. Their social credit, their credit, their money, their uh, religious allegiance is all tied to this person as a false resurrection. And we talked about that earlier. But they take a mark to follow allegiance to him. And if you don't, you probably lose your head. But he sets up an idol that has the power to speak. We talked about potentially how AI could play into that. Or even if it's just a spiritual thing. Uh, we see that people begin to bow down and worship an image of him and worship him in, in, in great idolatry. There's also a false prophet who goes out, just like God is real prophets, just like Jesus is a prophet, the final prophet. Um, he, this false prophet goes out and gives lying signs and wonders to deceive and to lead people to follow this uh, charismatic leader. Um, and they also sing songs to him. They sing songs to him, and we'll see uh, what they get for that. 
But again, this is not just an economic system. Sometimes we think of this as just, oh, it's buying or selling. But it is that. It's also a dictatorship. But it's also him claiming to be God. Remember, he brokers his peace deal between Israel and their enemies. They rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount. Uh, the Gentiles hold the outer court, as we know. The Muslims uh, hold the outer court, but they still rebuild the temple. Halfway through, he breaks his deal. He stands in the middle of the temple. He says, that's it, guys. I'm God. You must worship me. Stop worshiping your gods. You're not allowed to have these other gods. You must worship me. I am God. And that's where he stands there. So this system is economic. It's social. But it's also religious on top of being political. And it's interesting how dictators put up their images everywhere, right? Saddam Hussein, all these pictures and idols of him uh, or statues of him. And again, this is always a perversion of what God does, right? Satan can't come up with anything new, despite what he'd like you to think. He doesn't come up with anything new. It's always a perversion of the truth. But God deserves worship. And those who go against the true and living God deserve death. That's just the facts. And Satan loves to twist that. I've seen memes about that, trying to debunk Christianity. But God doesn't wish that any would perish, right? He, de he desires that all would have eternal life. That those who go against God, God doesn't get any pleasure in destroying. But those who go against the Antichrist, he gets lots of pleasure out of destroying. Satan loves to steal, kill, and destroy. God doesn't like to destroy. God is a God of creation. But God will destroy when it is time and when it, he must destroy. And believe you me, there is a time when things must be destroyed. When things are so rotten, so gone, they're beyond salvation. We remember, if you look back, we saw that three angels were sent out in this last time. That one was sent out with the eternal gospel to preach the gospel again. <laughs> right? If they hadn't heard it before, they're definitely hearing it now. Another one proclaiming that Babylon, this world system, the world capital will fall, as we'll see. But also that wrath is coming to those who have taken the mark, who have worshipped the beast, who are, have already sealed their fate, so to speak. When they took that mark, they've sealed their soul, uh, they've made their decision and they have no hope for them left in this life. And Lord, we thank you that there is still hope for us left in this life. There's hope now for the people who don't know you to come to know you, God, by your spirit. Your spirit is out in all the world. It's preaching of sin and uh, judgment and of righteousness that they would come to you. And it brings conviction. And God, you're in the church and filling your church and using the church. God, would you continue to do that? But Lord, bring people to know you in these last days before it is too late. And God, help us read this and uh, learn from it and study it and be sobered by it, God. But also excited and ready for your return. So come soon, we pray. And God, please do speak to us uh, in your word. We love hearing from you. We need to hear from you. You feed us. You're our good shepherd. So God, we love you and trust you for all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's go through uh, Revelation. And we're going to take it in bite-sized chunks, hopefully. And uh, we'll go from there. So Revelation chapter 15. I'll read the first four verses together. It says, I, John, saw another great and marvelous sign in heaven, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who have victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God, they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations shall come 
and worship before you, for your judgments have been revealed. And we'll stop there. We see that John says he saw another great sign. If we remember, uh, there were previous signs in heaven about uh, the woman and Israel and the dragon, uh, the story of salvation and Satan's war against God uh, throughout all of history to the end. Uh, we remember that there is that crystal sea over which they they played, and I likened it to kind of like a hologram. Uh, and you can kind of go back in that old study to, to go back into that more. But we see seven angels, and they come out bringing the seven last plagues. The seven last plagues. That These are the last ones. There's been a lot of plagues on earth. We had a plague recently, which you could argue one way or the other was good or bad. There's been bubonic plague. Uh, but ultimately, in biblical nature... There were many plagues before that. There were the 10 plagues uh, in, in Egypt, right? And we'll look at that in a moment. But God's judgment has an end. That these are the last plagues. That God desires that there be an end to plagues on earth. That there be an end to plagues in your life. That there be an end to plagues of society. That God doesn't like when bad things happen. God wants them to end. But God also allows plagues to happen. And even here, calls them to happen. Pours them out on earth. The demands and dictates that they happen. Because they're necessary to deal with evil at times. And it's, again, it's not something that he enjoys doing in a sense. Obviously, there's some enjoyment, some fulfillment in executing righteousness, right? But it's something he must do in a sense. Not that he couldn't do it, but he must do it because he is righteous. And for righteousness to remain righteous, sin must be dealt with. But it must be dealt with at the right time and in the right way. And God is the only one who can determine that accurately, right? So if God is merciful and gracious with someone and shows them compassion, well, guess what? God is being merciful and gracious with compassion. That's the right way to deal with sin. And other times, God allows someone to be caught, allows someone to be disciplined, allows someone to go to jail or be killed or these other things. It is in the right time and in the right way. And I guarantee God was gracious and merciful up to that point. And somehow, even in the dispensation of that judgment on their life, I guarantee that there's grace and mercy mixed in with it as well. Romans 12, 19, 21 says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. That wrath has a place. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's not our part to bring out vengeance and wrath uh, in, a, in a vengeful way, uh, but it is God's. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. That wrath has its rightful place, and at some point, for that good to overcome over evil, for that good to overcome over evil bent on being evil, evil unrepentant in its evil, un evil worshiping its evil, it must be overtaken with wrath. If someone were intent on harming my family right now and coming to the house, would I sh my response would be based on their aggression. If they're coming in and I've got time to preach to them, I've got time to encourage them to stop, to slow down, to stop what you're doing, that Jesus loves you, this isn't what you want to do, I'm absolutely going to do that. But if they're rushing in here with guns blazing, I don't have time for any of that. They've made their decision and I have to step in and act and take them out as best as I can with the skills I can, with the tools I have, even if it means putting my weaponless body in front of them to stop them from harming my family. I will execute whatever wrath I need to to stop them from bringing wrath on my family. Why? Because I love them, right? And we saw earlier, we'll see it later about this, the tribulation saints and what God's going to do there. But believe you me, if someone came in and shot them and I was just saying, oh, God bless you, you know, God will forgive you. 
Well, what does that say about the love for my children? It says I don't love them, right? But there's a gap there. And that's the same thing with God. God allows things to go on for a season. He responds in a way that only God can. But at some point, God will bring that judgment to an end. Well, what about all the bad things that happen in the world? Well, those aren't God's fault. Somehow God is being gracious and merciful and allowing things to happen, even if they're bad to you, to show his mercy and grace. Why? Because we live in the age of grace right now. Be thankful that we don't live in the age of wrath where his judgment comes right out against us as the minute we sin, even if we're sinned against. And I don't expect to understand that. I don't expect to wrap our heads around it or our hearts around it. But it's just the facts. It's the way it is. And these are the last plagues. So again, where were the first? You know, that we talked about the ten plagues on Egypt with Moses and Aaron, and God was trying to get his people out of the dictator Pharaoh's hands, out of their slavery, out of their abusement, if that's a word, and uh, taken out into the promised land. And so God sends Moses down to Egypt. Pharaoh's got a hard heart. So Pharaoh says, sure, you can go. No, you can't go. And so God brings a plague. Sure, you can go. No, you can't go. God brings a plague over and over and over. Uh, and Pharaoh keeps hardening his heart. Pharaoh hardens his heart. And on the last plague, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Right? And so that those were a sign of the things to come. Um, you know, you could argue Sodom and Gomorrah and the flood were God's plagues in a sense on the earth, the judgment and their types of it. Uh, but again, Moses is kind of this picture of these plagues in succession that God is going to bring on uh, towards the end of time, attacking the kingdom of the earth directly. You know, the, the, different, the frogs that the uh, Egyptians worshipped, the Nile that was their source of income and sustenance. You know, he attacked all the things, even the firstborn, even the one that they thought was God, their, their Pharaoh, he attacked their firstborn son uh, out of repentance there, that their kingdom would end, that their, his, his bloodline would end because he, he was not an eternal God like he claimed to be. But again, we see the sea of glass. That before the throne, there's this sea of glass. I don't know if you picture just a big ocean, a big expanse, a big petri dish of glass, so to speak. Um, and I, I like it that perhaps this is just, um, you know, a, a picture into creation. That This is the container of creation. I don't know, uh, but it's a sea of glass. And we've seen it before. And even in some visions, like we talked about, perhaps from below and through. But now we see it mingled with fire. I don't know if you've ever seen someone blow glass uh, on like Discovery Channel or on a YouTube video or something. Uh, but just how beautiful it is, how glowing it is, and how it just has this heat in it, in it. And it comes out. And I just think, you know, judgment and fire. That fire comes on the end of judgment. Fire is usually a sign of judgment. Uh, that hell is fire, right? But it's this, it's this portal, right? It's, it's all of creation, right? And 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13 says, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, and we've read this before, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, this is a big deal, what manner of persons ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? Again, this thing and somehow is a way of call to holiness, that holiness, you know, the refiner's fire, right? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, even the heavens, even the universe, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. You know, again, all this stuff is going to burn up. Why do we live for it? We need to live for the eternal kingdom. And nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That fire at the end comes to burn up all unrighteousness, and that righteousness may continue in perfect holiness for the rest of eternity. But we see the tribulation saints standing over it uh, in triumph. And we saw them earlier in Revelation 6, uh, saying, How long, O Lord, you know, that they were uh, 
uh, set apart for a time. And he said, uh, you know, how long until you're going to avenge our blood? That our blood has been spilled on the earth in tribulation. We didn't take the mark. We lost our heads. We couldn't buy or sell. We were beaten and persecuted because we accepted you finally in tribulation. How long, Lord, until you avenge us? Because they knew that he would. He knew that they knew that he would be their avenger. And they were given a white robe and they would rest a little while longer, Revelation 6 says, until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed was completed. That their, their payment for salvation, in a sense, their reward for salvation, I should say, is death during the tribulation. And they had to wait until the right time. And well, now this is the right time. Their time is completed as we're reading here in Revelation 15. And so what are they doing at this time? They are worshiping God. They were martyred for God. They're now standing over creation in a sense. In, in my mind, you know, it's just over this glass sea uh, that's burning. And they're worshiping him um, with the harps of God. I don't know what the harp of God sounds like, but it's probably awesome. You know, we've come up with some awesome instruments here on earth, like the guitar, the guitar, the stuff they make on computers nowadays. Uh, they just sound interesting, you know, old organs, but the harps of God must sound amazing. And they are worshiping him, right? And to think, you know, about the old martyrs who were tied at a stake or burned at the stake, right? That they literally were burned for him. And these people were martyred for Jesus. And what comes out of them? Praise. Is that us? When we put our lives on the altar, when we've allowed God to work his way in our life and it's cost us a lot, do we praise him or do we turn from him? Well, I hope that we praise him. I hope that it causes us to turn to him more and to bring more glory to him. And, and what is this song that they're singing? I think it's interesting. So we're talking about plagues, right? It's the song of Moses. It's the song of Moses, the servant of God. But most of all, it's the servant, it's the song of the lamb. We know that Moses was a picture of the law and Jesus was the fulfillment of that law, right? And it's interesting that Moses is brought up here as well. Uh, and Moses, and remember again, that there's also a remnant saved out of Israel, right? That these children, these sons of Moses, so to speak, God could raise them up from the rocks. But these children of Moses are worshiping um, Jesus as well. And Moses was used to bring plagues down on Egypt. And the Lamb has the authority to bring down the final plagues on earth. No one else could allow these things to happen. No one else could command these things to happen but Jesus. And they say to God, just and true are your ways. That even in judgment... Something that we struggle with. We, we always argue about whether the court judgment was right, the jury made the right decision, the judge ruled from the bench, all these things. But when God does judgment, when God brings down a final decision, a final act, a final verdict, the final punishment, it's always perfect. It's always holy. It's always righteous. Because holiness is separation from wickedness, right? And so at some point, holiness must do away with wickedness. If we desire to be holy in our own lives, we must first do away with wickedness. We must first put off the old man before we put on the new man, Paul says. That we can't be a both a spring of fresh water and a spring of salt water. It's only one type of water is going to come out, right? So we must purge that salt, so to speak, from our life and let the fresh come out. And if there's constant salt coming out of your life, constant bitter water flowing from your life, we have to say, is there any fresh in there? Have you been changed? Has God touched the waters of Meribah in your life and, and put the cross in there and changed you? Because if not, I think we really need to question, man, uh, have we allowed our holiness to be squashed 
by our own bitterness. We need to get rid of it and let it go uh, and be cleansed from that. And they say, who shall not fear you and glorify your name? Like, God, you are powerful. You are wonderful. Who shall not fear you? Like that song we sang, no one. Who is, holy? Who is more worthy than you? No one. Who else can save us? No one, God. You're the only one, they're saying. And it's almost in direct response, I believe, to the world refusing to do both. They refuse to fear God and they refuse to glorify his name. They will, in fact, do the exact opposite. They worship evil itself. They say good is evil and evil is good. And they say all nations. Again, that all nations have come. That every tribe and tongue will be both held accountable to God. And every tribe, tongue, and nation will also be saved. That there will be many out of every who will go to hell. And there will be many out of every who will go to heaven who will praise God. That there's... It's not, a, it's not a Western religion. It's not a white man's religion. It's not even a Jewish religion anymore. It is trusting in God, the creator of all men. And that's clear throughout all scripture that God even allowed the people of Israel to be a witness to the world around them. And that's what we need to be as believers, a witness to those around us. And what is a witness? Well, it's someone who's seen something, but I think it's also, uh, you put a witness mark on something. You're gonna, I was showing Jake, we were on the roller coasters the other day. And they, uh, they tighten the screws and they put little marks on each one of, with paint. And it's, they're called witness marks. So you know that it's been tightened. You know that it's all the way on there. When I work on the cars and I do suspension stuff, I do the same marks. So I can kind of peek in there and see if the two marks have separated because the screws started to back out. And that's a witness. We, don't even, we shouldn't even have to speak. People should be able to look at our lives and say, there's something different there. I witnessed something different in that person's life and maybe they don't know what it is, and that's an opportunity to tell them why. But there should be a witness mark. If there's not, well, if there's no witness to holiness in our life, they're never going to see God. If we claim to, to be a holy people, but our lives are not holy, our lives are not separate, our lives do not witness to the fact that God himself is holy, well, then how do we expect anyone to come to know him around us? Should they even believe we're believers? What do we believe then? If we claim to believe that God is holy and our lives don't look holy, what do we believe? Well, I don't think we really believe God is holy. I don't think we really believe that he's God. I think we believe we're God and we can make our own choices because we're dictating what's right and wrong. And your judgments have been revealed, they say. Well, Revelation reveals Jesus for who he is. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration? He goes up there with a couple of his close guys and he spends time with God and they see Moses on the mount and Jesus revealed in glory and he's glowing. Right. Well, he kind of veils that back up while he's on earth. And then he goes up to heaven and we have the witness of him and of the disciples and the scripture. And Revelation reveals who he truly is. He's not just a lamb, but he's a lion of the tribe of Judah. He's a warrior. He's coming back. He's going to force people get away with all sorts of stuff now, they think, because God has a stroke me dead. Well, guess what? That's because he's being kind and gracious and merciful. And there's a time coming when he's going to be totally revealed. And there's not going to be any question about how powerful Jesus is. There's not going to be any question that he's God. There's not going to be any doubt that he's holy and perfect and all powerful and who he says he is. You know that we live in the age of grace, this church age that we're in from the, uh, the, the ascension and Pentecost until the, the rapture. 
is this church age when God has used his Holy Spirit on the earth through believers to pour out his grace on earth and say, look, you can be forgiven. Stop sinning. Come to the cross. Come to the cross. Be washed. Be cleansed. Be changed. Be made new. Leave all that other garbage behind and have a new life. That's an age of grace. Because people keep sinning. People keep sinning worse. Look at America. We've had the gospel. And to think that the judgments coming on us now aren't due, well, we've turned from that. But God is gracious to continue and compassionate to let people turn to him during this age. But at one day, this age is going to end. This age of grace and mercy and truth is going to end. And it's going to be full of deception and full of judgment. And it's going to be a limited time, only seven years. We've had several thousand years to turn before seven years of judgment. Let's go on to verse 5. It says, After this, John says, I looked, and now the temple, the tabernacle, the testimony in heaven was open. Not to say that five times fast. The seven angels came out of the temple with seven plagues. Uh, they were clothed in pure bright linen, having their chest wrapped with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. That these seven angels come out of the heavenly tabernacle. Remember that the tabernacle in the wilderness uh, was when the Israelites were wandering. They couldn't build a permanent temple, so God had them build a tent. And in that tent, they moved around and had all this prescription of where to do the sacrifices, where the Ark of the Covenant went. But really that it was um, a picture of heaven, as Colossians 2.17 would phrase it, a shadow of things to come. That if you imagine the light of God in heaven casting a shadow of the temple on earth, and it was the tabernacle, right? Then that became the temple. And then really we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit uh, because of Jesus. But these angels come out of this, this structure in heaven, which is interesting because you think of heaven as a whole heaven being a temple, right? But there's a temple in heaven. And they're wearing pure, bright, white linen. Again, shadow of things to come. What did the priests wear? Pure, bright, white linen. To show that they were clean. It was a light cloth so they wouldn't sweat while they were working, while they were serving God. It wasn't labor for them. Uh, but it shows this righteousness. That they come out dressed in white as full of righteousness. That they are servants of righteousness. The angels in themselves aren't righteous, but they're serving righteousness. And they have a gold sash, the sign of deity, of royalty, of wealth and prestige. You know, that this is a holy moment. That this moment of these bowls being about to be poured out is a holy event. They're not coming out all cloaked, all evil looking. They're coming out looking holy and pure and serving God out directly out of the temple. It doesn't come from God's basement. It comes from God's temple where worship happens. And the four living creatures, remember those uh, crazy looking creatures in our minds who are around God with the wings and the faces and they worship God, the, the, uh, the seraphim and the cherubim. Uh, they bring these bowls, they give these bowls, I believe they get them right from God, and they give them to these angels to pour out. And these bowls are full of the wrath of God. And I don't know if you see my wife when she makes coffee in the morning. God bless her. She has this cup. Some of them look like a bowl with a little handle on it. And they're filled up to the brim with coffee. She presses the button, puts her stuff in, and it's right up to the top. And it'll sit there until it gets cool enough, and she'll carry it over very carefully. It doesn't spill a drop. 
I can remember my mom making me tomato soup as a kid and when I was sick and just never trying to spill it and you always have the sauce or anything. But I just imagine these big bowls. I don't know how big they are. You know, is it a, a big bowl? Is it a little bowl? It's, it's a bowl, right? I, I imagine it's, it's, it's something substantial, right? Perhaps they have to walk like this, you know? And they're not going to spill anything. That there's nothing missing out of these bowls. These bowls designed and set apart for this holy act of wrath are full. They're not overflowing. There's not too much. God is not punishing too much. They're not half empty. God is not punishing too little. It is perfectly full and perfectly ready and perfectly righteous. And it says that the temple is filled with smoke from the glory of God and his power. That in this wrath, we know that God dwells in unapproachable light. We know that God is also a lamb and we see him and we can approach him and sit on his lap and rule and reign with him. But now his wrath is poured out. That smoke and power and his like nuclear explosion of his power is beginning to fill heaven and fill this temple. That he's fully revealed. That God is sort of set apart, um, set apart this time for this. That he set apart this wrath. He's kind of held it at a distance that he might reach out to us, but now it's time for him to pour it out. And he uses his servants to do that. And remember, uh, with Moses, the Mount of God, when God desired to meet with the people, there was a smoke on the mountain, and they were too afraid to go up. And so only Moses went up and received the Ten Commandments. Right? Remember in Isaiah 6, uh, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Uh, you saw the seraphim. And they cried to each other saying, Holy, holy, holy. And it says, The post of the door was shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. We know that in the incense, smoke was part of the prayers of the saints. But this is, I believe this is God's just wrath and fiery fury. And it's just filling the whole place. It says that no one can enter the temple until then. In a sense, there's no worshiping God at this time apart from through his judgment. That this judgment and this wrath is the act of worship that these angels in heaven is doing. They're pouring out the wrath on the earth because this is the time for it. It's not the time for any other song or any other act of worship but this. And it's serious business. And I believe it's the focus of all of heaven and it's the focus of all of creation. And it's something that all of history, unfortunately, has been culminating towards is the wrath of God. The world is not getting better. It is getting worse and it is hurling towards the wrath of God at breakneck pace. And until it's completed, nothing can stop it. That at this point, it's too late for mercy. That the bowls are ready, the angels are prepared, God is revealing himself, and wrath is coming on the earth. And yet somehow I think that there's still a desire for repentance if it were possible among the recipients. Why? Because God is holy and God is loving, but he has to deal out this judgment. In their hearts, they will not repent, and they are totally hardened against God. And let's go on to verse, chapter 16, verse 1 through 7. says, Then I, John, heard a loud voice from the temple, again from the temple, saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the bowls of wrath of God on the earth. The first went out and poured out the bowl on the earth, and foul and grievous sores came on the men who had the mark of the beast and on those who worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became like the blood of a dead man, and every living creature of the sea died. And then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. 
Then I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, who is and was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard another from the altar saying, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And this loud voice comes out of the temple. I believe it's God's voice. Uh, it's the Lord's voice saying, Go pour out. And these angels, I believe they did not dare spill a drop. They did not uh, dare to, to pour it out until they were commanded because it was not their judgment to give. In the same sense, it is not our judgment to give either. We are not to judge other people to condemnation and say, you never had a chance of going to heaven. You're going to hell because you're a sinner. We can say, yes, on this path you are on right now, you continue on it, you will go to hell. But God loves you and desires that you not face that judgment. That yes, your sin deserves judgment, but God has given you a way out. We're not to say you're going to hell and give up on them, right? That's, that's different. Two different judgments there. And people love to confuse the two. You're judging me. No, I'm judging your sin. I'm trying to wake you up and free you from the fire and the shackles you are in. There's a difference there. But this is God's judgment. They want to make it clear that these bowls are bowls of God's wrath and no one else's. He's the only one who has the right to do so. And look what they did to the, his son. Look what they did to his servants. Look what we've done to him at the cross. All of us deserve this wrath. Every last one of us. Why are we not going to face it? The blood of Jesus. Because of the Lamb. Because of God Himself sending His Son to free us. Thanks for listening today. If you've never come face to face with God, if you're starting to see that your life is not all that it's supposed to be, if it's weighed down with sin and burden, or perhaps it's just empty. You have everything you want in life, but you know there's more. Know that Jesus loves you. Know that He cares for you. And that the reason why He came and died on the cross is that all the things you've done wrong, the things that are called sin, keep you from going to heaven. Keep you from being close to Him, close to the One who truly loves you. And if that's you, all you have to do, like the Bible says, is believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that He's Lord and you will be saved. You don't have to do anything else. So won't you pray with me? You can pray this. It's easy. Talk to Him. He's listening. Lord Jesus, God, I see that I'm a sinner, that I can't live without You. I can try, but and I have tried, but it's empty. It's worthless. It's painful, and, and it's killing me. And I'm sorry. Please forgive me of hurting you and hurting other people and myself. Please make me clean. Help me, God, to know you and to trust you and to follow you all my days. Be my Lord. And come soon, I pray, Jesus. Amen. And if you've prayed that or something similar in your own words, please let us know. Visit our website and get in touch. Or talk to someone in your life who's a Christian. Find a good church that believes the Bible, that teaches the Bible, that lives it, and get involved. Christians aren't perfect, but God is, and He wants you to be around others who love Him. So may God bless you and keep you, and His face shine upon you.